So I wanna uh, start this morning by uh, reading our text. Uh, we're gonna be looking at Matthew 9, verses 14 through 17, if you wanna turn there now in your Bibles. It's on page 814 in the Black Pew Bibles, if, you, if you're looking at one of those. But again, we're gonna be looking at Matthew 9, uh, verses 14 through 17. So I'll give you a moment to turn there, and then I'll read it. All right, so in that passage, God says this. This is Matthew 9, 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John, that is John the Baptist, came to him, Jesus, saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The day the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. This morning, I'm gonna be continuing our Gospel Made Visible series uh, with a sermon on fasting. And I'm doing that for two main reasons. First, it's because fasting is, in a lot of ways, a forgotten spiritual discipline. Um, Very few Christians, or, or maybe I should add the caveat, at least very few American Christians practice it. Um, But even in our passage, we see Jesus saying, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast. Even though fasting is so often neglected, it's expected from Jesus. We'll get into the meaning of this text more later, but Jesus is talking about himself as the bridegroom right here. He's saying that when he goes away, as in when he ascended into heaven and left his disciples, then they would fast. He expects his people, as long as he is away from us, to fast. So that's us. We should be fasting. And we see the same expectation in Matthew 6 during his Sermon on the Mount. Um, In Matthew 6, 6 16 through 18, Jesus says this. He's giving some instruction on fasting, and he says, And when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So do you see what he says? He says, when you fast. Not if you fast. Jesus expects his followers to practice the spiritual discipline. So as his people, we need to be reminded of that, especially when it's so rarely talked about or actually done a lot of the time in the church. So that's our first reason. But I'm also preaching on this topic for another reason too. 
Second, I'm preaching on fasting right now specifically in the life of our church because more than ever before in the life of our church, we need it. Redeemer members know this already, um, but if you aren't a member here, Chet um, just this week announced his resignation. And I believe as a church, we should support him and his family in this decision. But no matter how right a decision like that may be, it's still loss. It's still painful. We cannot and should not gloss over that fact. We are losing a visionary and influential leader. Redeemer would not even exist if it were not for him coming here to plant it and sacrifice so much of his time and energy for the life of this church. This is a time of grief and a time of uncertainty in Redeemer Church. We never truly know what the future holds for any of us. That's always our reality. But we are keenly aware of that reality right now as a church. This is a time when more than ever before, we're feeling our acute need for God, for his guidance, for his support, for his love. So this is exactly the kind of time when we need to be meditating on and reflecting on what fasting is and practicing it. That is above all why I'm preaching on this topic this morning. Last week, I preached on corporate prayer, and at the beginning of my sermon, I mentioned a number of examples from Scripture where we see corporate prayer happening. I mentioned a passage from Ezra, a passage from Nehemiah, a passage from Esther, numerous passages from Acts. I preached on Acts 4. All of those examples were occasions when the people of God were faced with a great need, and they sought him together in prayer. Well, Did you know that almost in every one of those instances that I brought up, each of those examples of corporate prayer that I mentioned, in almost all of them, fasting was also taking place. In Ezra 8, verse 23, it says, So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened listened to our entreaty. From Nehemiah 9.1, Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth, and with earth on their heads. Esther 4, 16 says, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Or Acts 14, verse 23 And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, this is talking about Paul and Barnabas, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You guys, time after time in scripture, when God's people are in great need and are going to him in prayer, they fast as well. I mean, we even see this in Jesus Christ himself at the very beginning of his ministry, Right before he started calling his disciples, what did he do? He went into the wilderness and he prayed and fasted for 40 days and nights. In fact, the connection between our dependence on God and fasting is so strong that fasting is mentioned more times in scripture than even baptism is, which was not something that I even realized before, but Donald Whitney in his book on spiritual disciplines, he points that fact out. Fasting is talked about in scripture more than even baptism is. My point is this, our natural reflex 
as individual Christians and as a congregation, especially at times in need, should be to go to God in prayer and fasting. So Redeemer, my desire for us in the coming weeks and months is that we should be doing that very thing. And if that seems unnatural, if that seems maybe extreme to be thinking about being a church that's fasting regularly together, maybe, that's, maybe the issue is not that that's not the right thing to do. Maybe that's because we have a small view of the power and effectiveness of fasting. So let's challenge ourselves in this regard. regard. And that's why we will be having regular prayer meetings in the coming weeks. We talked about this in our members meeting. We're gonna be having weekly prayer meetings. So during those meetings, let's, in preparation for them, I'm gonna encourage us all and challenge us all, consider fasting, even if it's just for one meal. Consider fasting together. Let's do that together. Our fasting will not only make the gospel visible, but it will help us grow through this hardship and bring glory to God as we embrace our need for our Savior, which is always our reality. It's just we're more aware of that now maybe than we have been in the past. Being dependent and reliant upon someone is not comfortable. But when we are embracing that posture before God specifically, we're actually embracing our true state and purpose as the people of God. We're always dependent and reliant upon him. And so when we're actually embracing that posture before him, that's the best place for us to be. So we wanna do that together. Now, if you want a proposition to hang on to for this sermon, this is what I want you to get. We fast because we want and need nothing in this world more than Jesus Christ. Again, we fast because we want and need nothing in this world more than Jesus Christ. My aim with this sermon is to make sure you understand that. And I want to show you how fasting is one of the best things that we can be doing as a church right now because of that truth. Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you that by pointing out how fasting actually sharpens and trains our focus on Christ in three specific areas that we're desperately in need of right now. I'm absolutely convinced that as we fast as individuals or together, our abiding in Christ will grow in each of these areas. And those areas are gonna be hope, guidance, and unity. So those are gonna be my points that we look at this morning. So let's first consider that first one, hope. Fasting expresses and exercises our hope in Christ. So I I hope you'll see clearly how it's not only an expression of our hope in Christ, but it also is an exercise that trains us to hope in him more too. And that is the most crucial lesson that we really learn from this passage in Matthew 9 this morning. This is why I've chosen this as our primary text to look at because this text really drives that point home. That Christian, and this is what really sets Christian fasting apart from all other forms of fasting that you see today. So look with me um, at the passage really quick. In uh, Matthew 9, look at verse 14. It says this, Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So the disciples of John the Baptist are asking Jesus why they 
excuse me, and the Pharisees are fasting, but Jesus isn't having his own disciples do it. The Jews see a difference in their view of fasting compared to Jesus' view of it. Um, and they don't know what that difference is yet, which is why they're asking him. They're asking Jesus about it. They want to understand, like, why, why are you viewing it differently? Why aren't you having them practice this when we are? And look at what his response is. Look at verse 15. Jesus says this, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. Now, if you aren't familiar with biblical language and prophecy, especially if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, Jesus's answer probably seems super strange to you. It's like they're, they're asking him about fasting. Why aren't you guys fasting? And his answer is to say, well, the bridegroom is here. He's talking about a wedding. Why is he using wedding language as his response to a question about fasting? It seems strange if you're not familiar with that biblical language. But his, his answer is striking if you do understand that language. Jesus is actually talking about himself here. He is the bridegroom. Even though Jesus never actually got married in life, he is the bridegroom that this passage is referring to. And he knows that they, John the Baptist's disciples, will recognize that he's referring to himself because John actually used the same exact language when talking about Jesus himself. We see that in John's gospel. So keep your finger here in Matthew 9. But if, if, if you can, turn uh, with me to John 3. I want to show you guys a passage in John 3 where John the Baptist is actually using this same language. I'm looking at uh, John 3, verses 22 through 30. So if you're there, follow along with me as I read this. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing John also was baptizing at Enon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, they're talking about Jesus, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist here is talking about Jesus. John's calling himself the friend of the bridegroom, and Jesus is the bridegroom. So again, John is teaching his disciples that Jesus was the Christ, the, the prophesied Messiah who would save Israel, and that he would be the bridegroom, and that his bride is actually Israel. And where does John get this language from? Like I mentioned before, it comes from the Old Testament. 
Numerous passages from the Old Testament refer to God cherishing and exalting in Israel as his bride. Let me just read for you quickly a passage out of Isaiah. You don't have to flip there, but in Isaiah 62, verses one through five, it says this. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of our God. You shall no more be be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be named desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and you, your land shall be married. For as a young woman marries, as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Friends, these are astounding connections that we see here between Isaiah 62, John 3, and our passage in Matthew 9. For John and Jesus to both refer to Jesus as the bridegroom means a couple key things. For one, they are equating Jesus to God. Don't overlook that. They are not saying that he's simply a great man who's coming to help Israel. They are saying that he is the God, he is the Lord that it's talking about in Isaiah 62. He is that God who will redeem, save, and love his people, his bride. But also, they are connecting fasting to Jesus' work of salvation. Jesus does not want his disciples fasting while he's with them because his presence should be reason for rejoicing. Again, it says in Matthew 9, verse 15, his very first comment, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? His point is, I am here, the coming Messiah, the Savior, The God of Israel is with its people. This is a time for rejoicing, not for mourning. This is not a time for fasting, therefore. But again, why? And that's rooted in what Jesus came to do. This is where the gospel is so evident in this testimony, in this explanation from Jesus about when and why we fast. Jesus, the God-man, came to earth to save God's people and to bring us back into fellowship with the Father. In our sin, we made ourselves enemies of God, not friends. We need reconciliation. We need a mediator to bridge that gaff, to bring us out of rebellion into fellowship and communion and love with God. And when Jesus came and died on the cross to pay for our sins, that's exactly what he did. He reconciled us to our heavenly father. He brought us peace with God and he reconciled us when we had made ourselves his enemies. When we trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins, we are brought into union with God. We are his bride. We are adopted into his family. Because of Jesus, we are God's joy and delight. And even more than that, he changes our hearts so that he would be ours as well. 
As the psalmist says in uh, Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The psalmist there is delighting in God and we are also able to do so through Jesus Christ. He changes our hearts so that the joy, the fleeting, just temporary joy that we were constantly seeking in the things of this world, we're able to find truly and fully in satisfaction in our God. Jesus opened up that, that opportunity and way for us when he died on the cross. So what I'm saying is that in Matthew 9, Jesus is teaching us that fasting is meant to represent our longing for him, for our Savior and Lord. When he ascended into heaven, his disciples began fasting because they longed to be in his presence again. And as Christians, we fast as well because we long to see him and to be near him. We want to be in his presence. We rejoice in the fact that he came and saved us. So now we also yearn for the day when he will return and we get to be with him in glory Paul expresses this same sort of, as John Piper puts it, hunger for God. He's, he's got a book titled The Hunger for God, and it's about this topic of fasting. If, if you want to read a book on this topic to understand it better, I highly recommend um, his book. But that idea of that hunger for God, that yearning for God, um, Paul talks about it in Romans 8, verses 22 through 23. He articulates it so well. He says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We fast to express and exercise our hope in Jesus. In verses 16 and 17 in Matthew 9, Jesus is giving us two illustrations to show that his new reason for fasting is different from the old reasons. If you look, it says, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is a new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Now, we don't use these types of things um, today. We don't use wineskins. Um, so these illustrations might not make a whole lot of sense to us, but, but the specific understanding of the reasons behind why you don't do those things isn't the, the point. The point Jesus is trying to make here is that the new and the old are different, and so we're not mixing them. His reason for fasting is different than the old Jewish custom of fasting that the Pharisees and John the Baptist's disciples were practicing. The illustrations, again, might be strange, but his point is that Christian fasting is not the same as the old Jewish custom of fasting. It's newer and better, and so they shouldn't be confused with one another. The old custom was rooted in the belief that a Messiah would come one day. And this is where the key difference is. The Jews didn't know who or when 
that person would come. They didn't know how he was going to save them. They just knew someone would come one day and would provide some sort of salvation. A lot of the Jews thought it was going to be an earthly, kingly rescuing from the nations around them. So the, Jewish, the old Jewish custom of fasting was looking forward to a hope that they weren't sure of. It was mysterious. It was unclear to them. They just knew that there would be some kind of Messiah that would come and save them in some way. Well, Jesus' new fasting is based on the fact that the bridegroom, the Messiah, has already come. When we fast as Christians, we know where our hope rests. That is the key difference. It is not in an unknown Savior shrouded in mystery. It's in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We know what he came and did. We know the gospel. We have the good news. We know Jesus lived the perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. He was buried for three days and was resurrected to show that he conquered sin and death and he ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of God. We have that testimony. We have that truth. And our fasting is meant to point us back, to be an expression of our hope in him and in what he accomplished. That is the difference. Redeemer, there are so many things that we are predisposed to try to hope in other than him and his finished work. Right now, especially as a church who is struggling and fearful about what our future is gonna hold, as we enter uncertain times, we are going to be tempted to trust in so many other things rather than Christ. Take a second to stop and think about that personally for yourself. What do you personally think we must have for us to, to continue as a church? maybe to, to thrive as a church? What do you think we need? What have you been resting and comfortable in, maybe in the past, that is being challenged now, that we're unsure about now? Does leadership need to look a certain way? Do we need to have a perfect strategy and game plan for moving forward? Do we main, need to maintain a certain budget or size as a church? Church family, the Lord has brought us to this season in the life of our church so that we could humbly ask ourselves, what are we trusting in besides Jesus? What have we been resting in that we've become shaken in now? He has brought us to this season to help remind us that he is more than sufficient for us. That is why fasting is so important for us right now. Not only is this an attempt to express that we want our hope to rest in him, but it is an opportunity to exercise that. When we fast, we are saying, like Jesus did when he fasted and was tempted by Satan, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We are in a very real and physical way demonstrating that we believe Jesus is the true bread of life. We are expressing that to the world and we are reminding ourselves of it every time we feel the pangs of hunger. When you're fasting, you're gonna get uncomfortable. You're gonna feel hungry. Like that, that, that's the point of it. The point of that is to recognize that when we are hungry for food, 
we actually have a greater need beyond that next meal. It is meant to be a reminder for us that we need him even more than we need our daily food. When we challenge ourselves by fasting, we are exercising our faith by relying on our Lord more than the things of this world. Fasting puts into practice something that we could say but not really mean. Like we could say, I'm trusting in Jesus more than anything in this world, but fasting is an opportunity to really actually practice that, to test ourselves in that. When we're really hungry and we want to just have that snack, we want to eat lunch, we don't want to skip that meal, when we're really tempted to eat that food, by choosing not to do so, by holding to our commitment, we are actually practicing. It's an exercise of faith. It's like training our faith muscles It is us training and equipping ourselves to walk in greater dependence and obedience with our Lord. But fasting can involve more than just food too. If you sense that you are controlled by something other than food, if you're hoping in something else too much, you can fast from that to accomplish similar things. I know some of you, myself included, have fasted from social media, from television, from other things like that. That's a great thing to do. The examples that we see in scripture are all examples of dietary fasting, but the principle extends far beyond just abstaining from food or drink. So friends, let's enter a season of intentional and corporate fasting to remind ourselves and to show to the world that our confidence is not in the things of this world. Think about Psalm 20, verses six through eight. It says, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven, from the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of our Lord, our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. That is how fasting makes the gospel visible. Our confidence as Redeemer Church is in our cornerstone and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our hope and our strength. We can trust and depend on him. All of our worldly comforts could disappear, but as long as we have him, we are rich beyond compare. Fasting is an occasion for us to be reminded of that. But there are other reasons to fast too. So let's consider the second one that I originally brought up. Guidance. Second, fasting helps us seek guidance from God even more powerfully than prayer does by itself. And this one builds off of the first example, the first reason I brought up. If our hope and satisfaction are rooted in Jesus Christ, it would only make sense that we would also want to hear from him, not just be with him, but to hear from him and to know how to follow him properly. Fasting helps us to do that. But how? Um, I really like the way that John Piper puts it. He says, fasting, this is a, a great way to kind of sum up one aspect of fasting. He says, fasting is a physical exclamation point that we put at the end of our pleas to God. It is how we can add intensity and poignancy to our prayer. Arthur Wallace in his book on fasting says something very similar. He says this, 
fasting is calculated to bring a note of urgency and importunity to our praying and to give force to our pleading in the court of heaven. The man who prays with fasting is giving heaven notice that he truly is earnest. Not only so, but he is expressing his earnestness in a divinely appointed way. He is using a means that God has chosen to make his voice to be heard on high. Now, Wallace's language is a little archaic maybe, but his point is key. What he is saying is that God himself has shown us in his word, and all the examples I already brought up earlier, that if we want to reinforce to him how important and earnest we are in our prayers to him, he wants us to fast. That's why you see praying and fasting going hand in hand so often in scripture. They go in tandem together. It's like adding the, the high priority, a little like red exclamation point. If you use Microsoft Office um, Outlook, uh, we use that at work. Um, if you want to show that an email is really high priority, you add this little like red exclamation mark. That's basically what we're doing when we're fasting along with our prayers. Now, fasting can't compel God to do our bidding. That's not what it is. But it certainly pleases him when we use his own ordained means of strengthening our prayers to him. In Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, um, it's a book. Donald Whitney gives us a great example of prayer and fasting being prayed together. And he shows that we do it for the sake of seeking God's will and guidance in our lives. He says this, in Judges 20, the other 11 tribes of Israel prepared for war against the tribe of Benjamin. The soldiers gathered at Gibeah because of a shocking sin committed by the, ben, by the men of the Benjamite city. They sought the Lord before going into battle. And even though they outnumbered the Benjamites by 15 to one, they lost the battle and 22,000 men. The next day, they sought the Lord with prayer and tears, but again, they lost the battle and with thousands of casualties. Confused, the third time, they not only sought guidance from the Lord in prayer and with tears, but they also, and this is a quote from the scripture, fasted that day until evening. Shall we go again to battle with Benjamin, our brother or not, they asked in the passage. Then the Lord made his will plain. Go, for today I will give them into your hands. And this is, this is how um, Whitney sums up that example. Only after they sought him, God, with fasting, did the Lord give Israel the victory. Redeemer, think back to last week when we looked at Acts 4 and we discussed the power of corporate prayer, how it amplifies our trust in God our passion for his mission, and our love for one another. Think about how powerful the prayers of the saints are. Well, just think about what it would be like if we were regularly adding fasting to our prayers with one another. Now, more than ever, as a church, we need God's guidance and direction. Well, let's communicate that need. Let's seek that guidance. Let's seek his will in prayer by communicating our need and urgency to him in the exact way that he desires for us to do so through fasting. And remember this too. 
As I said before, we cannot compel God to answer our prayers. But that's good because such works-based religion is a very double-edged sword. Christianity isn't like other religions where we have to pray and fast to be in right standing with God so that he'll bless us. In Islam, for instance, one must fast regularly during Ramadan if one hopes to be found righteous by Allah and receive his blessing. And even then, though, you never actually know if what you have done is good enough. Works-based religions are only good if you're one of the lucky few who um, might be good enough to meet the actual standards. But our faith in Christ is far more comforting than that. We have a faith in a God of grace. We know we don't hold up to the standards. We know we won't pray or fast enough to warrant God's mercy and love in our lives. God's help and support to us isn't dependent upon the frequency or intensity of our prayers or fasts. That's not why we do them. Our relationship with him is solely based on Christ. Merely through faith in him, we are adopted as righteous heirs and children of God. When we pray and fast, we do so as children already adopted and precious in the eyes of our heavenly father. Our pleading isn't done in front of a cold or distant judge. It is done as we sit on the lap of our doting and loving dad. When we ask God for something, we can be guaranteed that he will either give us what we've asked for or he will give us something that is better than what we, what we asked for. That's the confidence we have as the people of God, that if he doesn't give us what we ask for, it's because there was something better for us. We might not understand that at the time, but it is. That is wrapped up in his promises to us. His will is always for our good because he loves us as his children. So again, Redeemer, let's pray and fast together as we seek guidance from our loving Father. And let's do so with confidence, knowing that that he does not intend to leave or forsake us. And that brings me to the final reason why I want to commend us to fasting. Third and finally, fasting helps build unity in the church. This one might seem a little counterintuitive if you think about it. Um, if you've seen, when I was thinking about my preparation for this, I was thinking about the Snickers commercials, about um, typically when you're going hungry, that doesn't mean you become a friendlier, more loving person, if you guys can imagine those Snickers commercials. Um, there's a reason why the word hangry exists in common vernacular now. Um, hunger usually leads to anger and irritability, not the opposite. Um, but God actually, it's, it's, it's pretty cool, God actually addresses that very issue regarding fasting in Isaiah, um, in Isaiah 58, verses three and four, it says this. So it starts with Israel asking God a question. They say, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And then God responds, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. 
So we see the Israelites are asking God why he's not responding to them and their fasting. And God's response, he responds by saying that, there aren't, that they aren't doing it right. This is not a proper biblical fast that is honoring to God. And he knows that by pointing out the fruit of their fasting. It's because they're fighting with one another. Their fasting is actually leading to conflict and violence within the people. He's basically saying, um, if, if, you, if your fasting could lead you to being on one of those Snickers commercials like it's basically doing so for the Israelites, you're doing it wrong. And so I'm not going to respond to that. But then God does explain a couple of verses later what proper fasting does produce. Um, getting back to Isaiah 58, in verses six through eight, so again, just a couple of verses later, God says this, is not this the fast that I choose? So he's basically saying, this is what biblical godly fasting does. To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. God is saying, this is the kind of fasting that I hear and I respond to and bless. God is showing that proper fasting bears incredible fruit. It leads to love and to unity among his people, just as corporate prayer does, as we talked about last week. Our physical discomfort from fasting can and should, instead of pit us against one another, open our eyes to the distress and trials that others face. It helps us to empathize with one another, Corporate fasting helps unite us together in common desires and goals and truths, just as corporate prayer does. Fasting together helps us to have one heart and one mind as a church. Even more than that, fasting can, in very practical ways, free us up to minister to one another better. Think about it. Redeemer, think how significantly our unity could grow as a congregation if people skipped eating lunch, even just once a week, to get together and pray during their lunch hours. Or even if you couldn't get together with people because maybe you're at home with the kids or you just can't get away during your lunch break at work, what if you spent your lunchtime praying through our church directory for specific individuals? If we spent that time, instead of eating, even just one meal a week, we spent that time praying with other people, or four other people in our congregation. Church, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that I, I really believe that that would have a profound impact on our unity together as a church, especially now during this time. I also think that that would help guard us from many of the schemes of the devil as he tries to undermine and divide us as a church. As we pray for one another, we're guarding each other from his evil intentions. And fasting, even from meals or from other things, again, it doesn't just have to be food. It could be something else. That, in very real and practical ways, frees us up 
to be praying for one another and with one another. Another idea, I, I was trying to think, how can we be creative about we utilize fasting as a church for our good and for God's glory? What about this? What, what if we all decided to fast, this is just an example, fast from all social media during like the work day? So from eight to five, roughly nine to five, whatever, we decided to fast from social media. And what if we decided to instead use those moments when you're gonna open up Instagram and look through people's pictures and videos or look at your newsfeed on Facebook? What if instead we use those moments to encourage each other as a church? Think about the impact that we could have for our unity and joy together as a congregation. Every time, again, you would normally maybe open up Instagram or Facebook or Snapchat or whatever social media you use, you open it up for five minutes. We, we all probably do that pretty frequently during our days, even if it's just for a couple minutes. But what if, instead of opening up one of those apps, we go to our email or we go to um, our text messaging app, whatever you use, and instead of looking through social media, we sent a text to just one other person in the congregation to encourage them, whether it's sharing a passage of scripture with them that you think they would find encouraging or helpful, or maybe sharing a way that you've been encouraged by them recently, or even just pointing out to them a way that you have seen God working and moving in their life. Think about that. Instead of, instead of going to social media fasting from it and use that time instead to reach out to just one or two other people and encourage them. Think how life-giving that would be for our church, how unifying, how building up that would be for us together. That kind of collective fast could be a huge way in which our unity as a church goes and our love for one another deepens. Church, we need that kind of unity right now. We need the support and encouragement of one another. This is not a time for isolation or checking out because of fear or uncertainty. Let's rally around one another. And again, fasting can be a very helpful way for us to do that to the glory of God. Redeemer, we fast because we want and need nothing in this world more than Jesus Christ, as I said at the beginning. We do it so that we could hope in him more securely. We do it to seek his guidance with greater urgency. And we can even do it to bolster our unity with one another. Fasting is too precious a gift from God to ignore. So if you have been doing that, let's, let's change that habit. Let's establish new ways and habits and patterns in our lives as individuals and as a church especially now when we are so desperately in need of our God. Let's turn our attention to him even more fully through fasting. Let's pray and fast together as we seek him. And let's do so to magnify our Lord and to rest in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you have used... Um, this topic, my reflections on it this week as a great comfort to me, um, as a reminder of just how much I need Jesus Christ, 
Lord, I pray that that would be true for every single one of us. It's so easy to put our hope in so many other things. God, let that not be true of Redeemer Church. Let us rest and trust in our Savior, our bread of life, our risen and glorious King who is with us and watching over us and who will return and call us to himself in glory one day. Let us hope in him and hunger for him. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.